Simplicity is always the means by which God will resolve complexity. Often people uh, want to shy away from simple answers and simple solutions, believing that they're somehow simplistic and childish and therefore beneath their, beneath their interest, beneath their consideration. But when you look at the work of Jesus and when you understand the word of God, you understand that simple doesn't mean simplistic, it means profound. And so simple answers, simple solutions, and simple ways of living and behaving and following Jesus as Lord are always going to be the preference that he most wants us to desire. And so what we see around us is evidence of that in our life together at Apex. I want to read to you from our passage today, and I'm going to read from Luke chapter 20, and um, I'm going to read from verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. I'm just going to fire up the whiteboard here. It's important when we look at particular passages that we remember that within the flow of God's revelation, his intention is to speak to the people who first read these texts as well as to speak to us. And so it's important for us to understand perhaps what was the motive in the heart of the writer that the Holy Spirit used in his process of inspiration, ensuring that these words are holy words, the word of God himself. When you look at Luke and Acts, and we'll be into Acts in the new year, when you look at Luke and Acts, you see that Acts, the second volume in the story that Luke gives us, that Acts finishes in a very strange place. It, it feels as though it's kind of hanging in the air. Paul is in Rome, his team is with him, and he's awaiting trial before Caesar. Now that's a, that's a strange place to finish a story. But of course, the purpose of finishing at that point in the story in Acts 28 is so that the people who first read these texts understand why these texts were written. Luke was very probably preparing the gospel and the acts of the apostles as part of the documents for defense for Paul before Caesar. The people that were bringing the accusations against Paul 
were the religious elite. They were the religious authorities in Jerusalem. These people hated Jesus, pursued and persecuted him, and finally killed him. These people are the people that are pursuing Paul. They hate him, and their desire is to co-opt the power of Rome in the same way that they co-opted the power of Rome in the death of Jesus, to kill Paul and all of the adherents to this troubling and disturbing sect amongst them called the way, the people of the way of Jesus. These were the people who were bringing the accusations against Paul. And when you read through the gospel and you look at the Acts of the Apostles, it's amazing how often Luke gives us an understanding of what's going on within this social dynamic, within this, within this spiritual worldview that helps us to understand what it was that Jesus was up against, what it was that he was warning against, and what it was that Paul was seeking to stand against as he came before Caesar. And so when Jesus is recorded here, and of course Luke has lots of material that he can use, John tells us that if all of the things that Jesus did and said were written down, there would not be, all, there would not be enough room in all of the books in all of the world. So they have to be selective, the writers. So as Luke is selecting this particular piece of material here, he's selecting it for a reason. And the Holy Spirit is empowering him to do that. And the reason is simply this. Religion is against Jesus. Religion is the opposite of what Jesus offers. And religious leaders and those with religious power, the religious elite who have power conferred upon them by the structures that they have constructed will always stand against the Son of God. And so beware Of course, religion is common to all cultures, common to all people, manifests itself in many different ways, and in and of itself, in and of itself, separated from any tendencies of dispute and division, it's just simply a feature of human culture, and so therefore is neutral. Religion has always created and, and prepared and, and constructed symbols for people to understand who they are. It has structures and symbols that convey meaning and significance to the culture that has constructed that particular religion. And so, from that point of view, there's no real issue from God's point of view or from anybody's point of view, frankly, my point of view or yours. But there's something deeply troubling and pernicious about the work of religion. You see, 
religion is really about attending to the hard work of constructing and maintaining it. Religion conveys to the adherents of that religion notoriety, credit. Conveys to the adherents of that religion significance and success. If you are signaled and, and indicated as ones who are not only striving to maintain it, but are ones who are able to construct and build it. And so leaders of religion quickly fall into the addictive trap of being, of being given notoriety and significance for, for through their hard labors, and through their difficult work, maintaining the structures that continue to give significance to the culture at large. It's an addictive process. I mean, that little dopamine hit that you get every time you like somebody on Facebook, or more significantly, when you see the like come back about your posting, that little dopamine hit is multiplied hundreds of times over when people affirm you for leading their religion. I can remember the Lord uh, saying very clearly to me, really many years ago, you're not allowed to stand at the back door of the church anymore. I said, well, Lord, I'm, I'm their pastor. I'm supposed to take care of them. No, no. You can do that another time. Why, why Lord? Well, just think it through with me. What happens? Well, I mean, it can't be that bad that I feel really good after everybody's left. Can it, Lord? Oh, pastor, thank you so much for today's word. The way you parsed the Greek and explained to us the depths of the text of scripture. You're marvelous in our eyes. Yes, I know. I am marvelous. Thank you so much. That's what I said inside. Outside I said, oh, really, it was nothing. <laughs> the fact that I spent 40 hours through the week into the midnight hours wrestling in prayer. And the Lord said, you're not allowed to do that anymore. You see, I had my flowing robe of exposition. I had my flowing robe of religious significance. And there I was, and everyone could celebrate me. And it was great. It was good for them. It was good for me. What could possibly go wrong? Well, what could possibly go wrong is that, you know, it, the way that Jesus put it is quite simple, really. He, he said, and, and we'll look at this a bit more significantly last week, he, he said, literally, it's this. Beep. 
I'm pretty good at that, aren't I? Let's try another one. Hang on. No, I like this one. Jesus said, have you noticed the people when they bring their offering? How trumpets sound when they bring their offering. Have you noticed how people draw attention to themselves for their religious observance? All of the credit that they receive right there is all of the credit they will ever receive. Because whatever it is that religion confers upon you, it's the last conference of that affirmation that you will receive because God, he doesn't like it. Jesus does not offer a religion. Yes, we've constructed a religion around him and around his words and his work, but Jesus never offered a religion. Jesus never offered a cultural construct that was intended to offer you significance and meaning within your cultural setting. His intention was simply this, that you would have a relationship with the living God. The intention of Jesus was not to support, was not to tear down, was not to reference religion in any way. His task was simply to make a way for you and I to have an intimate relationship with our Father God through his finished work. No effort applied from our end. His finished work provided the way for the relationship. And in the power of the resurrection, Jesus offers us to be children of the resurrection. And as children of the resurrection, we receive the power of the Spirit to live the life of Jesus among the people that we're set. This is nothing to do with religion. Our life with Jesus is a life of intimate relationship with the living God. And you get no affirmation for building, supporting, and maintaining the religious structures. Because you can't get any more affirmation than this. You're my child, and I love you. I'm so proud of you. They're the words of the father to his children and they are not conveyed through religious structures. They are spoken directly to our heart in the presence and the power of the spirit of God. When we give people notoriety for their disciplines in religion, for their hard work, 
we invest in this idea that presentation and performance is more important than the internal reality of a person's life. Anytime that we allow the performance of great duty and great discipline to be the principal objective of our affirmation, we remove the focus where it should be, on a heart surrendered, on a heart connected to the living God. And the problem is not just there, unfortunately. Because when we focus in presentation, and when we focus in performance, we're always focusing on what's going on on the outside, and we have no, we have no focus, we have no attention, we have no intention of looking at what's going on on the inside. And so often what happens is what happens here in the text. Jesus says, they have flowing robes, they have great prayers, they have great prominence in the synagogue, they have the best seats in the banquets, but inside there is terrible abuse because their hearts are not changed and if their hearts are not changed then their hearts can only tend towards the things that an unchanged heart always tends towards which is serving ourself and so these religious leaders who were the executors of widow's wills benefited from the death of their husbands and stole away their homes. And so Catholic priests abuse children hidden behind the facade of religious observance. And Baptist pastors abuse their congregations because it's hidden behind the presentation of their religious observance. And women, women weep in silent desperation as they're abused in homes hidden behind the facade of a so-called Christian marriage. This is not theory. This is today. We all know it's true. It's so troubling to us that we're, we're kind of uncertain that we should even mention it. But it's what Jesus said. He said, if you invest in this process of giving affirmation for presentation in religion, you will allow the darkness to persist. And how often, how often do we do it? 
How often have we told our children the very same things? Remember, people are watching. How often have we invested in a process of presentation that leads us in the wrong direction? How often have we fallen foul of all of those religious instincts that are in every person on the planet in every period of history that's ever been? And so what should we do? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. This is what we should do. The interesting thing is, is that Paul was dealing with the self-same things that Jesus was dealing with right at the very beginning. The fascinating thing is that what Jesus was suggesting we should be beware of is the very thing that Paul was up against when he was corresponding with one of his churches in Corinth. In the second letter that we have available, there were three letters almost certainly. The second letter that we have available, he speaks about the super apostles who were speaking ill of him and his ministry who were drawing the attention of the Corinthian church because their worship leaders were better than Paul's. Because because their expositions seemed to be so much deeper than Paul's. Because their powers of rhetoric and public speaking were so much more dazzling. Their swashbuckling displays of exposition was such that people sat in open-mouthed wonder. But they were charlatans. And they were leading people into religion and away from a relationship with the living God through the finished work of Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And Paul says, I'm coming soon, by the way, and I'm going to see these guys and we'll find out whether they're as as good as they reckon they are. But he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Just pause for a moment. A stronghold is a defensive position. It's a place of hiding. The first time that the word stronghold occurs in the, in the Bible, it speaks of the cave of Adullam, where, where David found a defensive position against the machinations of King Saul. And there, with his mighty men, he, he developed a, a stronghold, a strong place. 
throughout Scripture, the idea of a stronghold is a place of defense, a place of hiding, a place of retreat. Paul says there is a place of hiding in all of these conversations among the super apostles. There is a place of hiding among these religious elite, and I'm going to expose what's hidden in their place of hiding. And the way I'm going to do it is this. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Knowledge there, it's the same word as sexual intimacy. It means the deep inner relationship that Jesus offers through his blood. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The picture he appears to have in mind is a bit like this. It's a stronghold made up of three elements. The curtain wall of the stronghold are arguments. The towers, the word pretension in Greek, suggests an overshadowing and a looking down upon. These towers are the pretension of the particular adherence to this stronghold. And there, at the center of the stronghold, which in European castle design is called the keep, where all of the treasure is found, and somewhere else is found, and I'll talk about that in a minute, there is the controlling thought that stands behind all of it. So let's just try it. Let's just try it for a moment. Let's try this as an argument, an argument that is so familiar to all of us, we're not even sure it's a spiritual stronghold at all. Hard work brings success. Hard work brings success. And we think, uh, uh, yeah, I, th I think that's probably true, isn't it? But you see, it's offered within a religious setting as a universal principle of truth. And you see, hard work doesn't always bring success. When you think about that single mother struggling 16 hours a day to raise her children, to keep down two or three jobs, to somehow keep back the forces of evil all around her as she, as she tries to marshal her resources and her strength. Is it her fault that she's not successful? Well, if hard work brings success, what's her problem? Come on now. What about that woman broken in a developing world culture where she's traded and used simply as an object of sex and when she's too old, she's traded in for another and she's worked day and night 
to look after the men in her life. She's not successful. Not in our eyes. But she's worked like a dog all her life. It's so obviously untrue that hard work always produces success. Obviously untrue. Down comes the curtain wall. But what about the pretension? Well, I've worked hard and I've got success. And therefore, the people who haven't got success are not as good as me because I've worked harder than them. And I resent the fact that these people are sponges and loafers and they're taking away all of the things that I put into the, into the economy. The pretension of it is unbelievable and breathtakingly arrogant. The fact that we feel that it is absolutely within our rights to look down upon another human being is amazing. When we could do nothing to save ourselves. When we could add nothing to our salvation. When no hard work, perspiration or determination on our part could add one centillion to the work of Christ. Why do we look down on others? When we have nothing to offer God, and yet he gives us salvation. Paul puts it like this, he says, count others as better than yourself. If you do that, then you'll look at their lives and say, I don't know what it is. I mean, I've done some things and it seems like it's worked for me. It's, it's not worked for them. And I'm sure they're at least as good as me, if not better. So, I mean, what is it? It's a completely different way of looking. And so the arguments are removed by the follower of Jesus, maybe not by the religious. And the pretensions are pulled down, not by the religious, but by the followers. And then inside, what is this thought? What is this thought that that gives so much spiritual energy to this very simple argument. And we could have chosen a whole bunch of arguments today and shown that that stronghold needs to come down. That simple argument about hard work and success, which is so patently and irrationally wrong. What's the thought behind it? The thought behind it that gives it all of its spiritual energy is this. It's me that's important. It's my work that's important. It's my effort that's important. It's my energy that's important. It's my gifts that are important. It's my talent that's important. It's my education that's important. It's me. It's me, me, me. Me. I'm the important one in this thing. I'm the important one. 
You see, that's what religion will always tell you in the end. You're the center of the universe, not God. Because it's all about you. It's all about me and what we can contribute and what we can do and how we can turn and change and affect and influence. But the relationship with Jesus will always tell you that you are not the center of the universe because you could add nothing to his work. My sister used to live in the Tower of London, which is where they put prisoners. She lived there because her husband was a beef eater. And so whenever I drove into London, I parked my car in the Tower of London. I never needed to lock it because it's where they keep the crown jewels. It's the safest place you could ever imagine. The walls are as thick as this building. And there, all of the treasures, all of the treasures of the nation, often plundered from other nations, are held. Along with all of the torture chambers in the darkness, evil grows up. Those torture chambers were just breathtaking to behold. You see, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he's not just giving you an alternative to religion. He's warning you about religion. Religion will always seek to hold on to the treasure at the center of that stronghold. But at the center of that stronghold, Darkness lives. And right there, tortures and terrors can be perpetrated that are beyond the ken of ordinary people. Beyond the wit of man, beyond the understanding of, of the ordinary person. And so run from religion. Run from it. Run from it today. Shun religion. Put it on one side. Do not believe that your religion will save you. It'll only darken and capture you. Today is a day of liberation, Apex. If you've never heard this before, or you've never heard it this way before, or this revelation is coming to you fresh today, then be liberated today. Leave behind the machinations of the past, the words of your parents who told you that presentation was more important than a relationship with God. Put aside all of the things that have, have invested in your life and understanding that religious observance is a means by which you can gain favor with God. Put it aside today and be free today. Be liberated today. Throw aside the shackles. Put down, put down the yokes and stand free today and be clear today. 
and raise your children in this faith and freedom today. Is there anybody who believes this? Let's stand where we are. Jesus, thank you that you liberate us from the deceptions of religion. Oh God, we could add nothing to the finished work of Jesus. We could not get you to love us because you already did. Lord, this day I pray, even now, as I hear in the heavenlies the rattling of chains and the breaking of yokes, Lord, even now I pray that revival would come to the hearts of every person, in-house or online. I pray, Lord, that liberation would be the theme in the hearts of each one of us. And Lord, we know that it's only free people that can liberate others. So Lord, may this be a movement of liberation. And may it be, Lord, that if it's not happened before, from today on, Lord God, may we be known as people of freedom and faith bringing liberty to all. And we pray it in the beautiful, in the wonderful, in the liberating name of Jesus and all God's people cry aloud. Amen. Amen.